Hello, protocols, packets, and programs. July 9th marks 30 years since the first DEF CON back in 1993. 30 years ago is, of course, an ancient era of the internet. So what topics were on that ancient agenda? Let's see. A talk titled Computer Privacy, First Amendment, Gender Roles, and Discrimination that mentioned things like workplace monitoring, an announcement about a new scanning tool, a talk on the law's intersection with VR and liability in simulated worlds, which noted how the hardware is moving to an interface that the user doesn't notice and that the law is untested against such worlds. All of which sounds so very, very quaint and relevant and unresolved and from 30 days ago rather than 30 years. Hmm. Well, anyway, which means this week we chat with Ch Shannon Leitz about software trust and why looking at adversary management can improve the resilience of your systems. We're also doing something different this week. We have a second interview with Melinda Marks to chat about developer-focused security that's more meaningful than shifting left. Stay relevant and stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. It's the show to learn the latest tools and techniques to understand DevOps, applications, and the cloud. Your trusted source for the latest AppSec news, it's time for Application Security Weekly. Business Security Weekly is recorded on Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Each week, we address the challenges facing CISOs through our guest interviews, including former and active CISOs. Our new segment is focused on leadership and communication to better help security leaders translate and communicate security risks into business risks. Jason Albuquerque, Ben Carr, Tyler Robinson, and others add their expertise to the conversation. I'm Matt Alderman, and I hope you search for Business Security Weekly in your favorite podcast catcher and subscribe to download our latest content. Developers have a need for speed to meet market demands, and application security needs to ensure that data and privacy constraints are met. Unfortunately, that can slow down delivery. So, is it even possible to deliver secure software quickly? Enter Secure Coding. Brought to you by GuidePoint Security's Application Security Services. Secure coding is more than a process, it's a cultural shift. One that will make it possible for both developers and AppSec to build in security while applications are being developed. Visit our AppSec resource hub to learn more at securityweekly.com slash guidepoint. This is episode 246, recorded June 27th, but will show up around July 10th, 2023. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm here with John Kinsella. Hello, John. I'm trying to stay relevant and figure out if I'm the same person I was 30 years ago. I hope I'm not, but... Um. <laughs> Let's ask ChatGPT. <laughs> Um, if you want to stay relevant, John, you can now find us on Instagram as well as share your own Instagram because we've got some highlight reels, giveaway announcements, and more at Sec Weekly. And we'll find out what John's Instagram is later. But first, Shannon Leitz is a 30-year-plus-year award-winning technology and cybersecurity innovator. She is currently the CEO of ThirdScore, a risk management company leading the way towards greater software trust. She is also founder of DevSecOps and leader of the Rave community. Previously, Ms. Leitz was VP of Product and Software Security at Adobe, driving the security of Adobe's products and third-party ecosystem. She has worked and consulted for many of the Fortune 500 supporting cybersecurity and digital transformation using metrics to guide her work. Hello, Shannon. Thank you for joining us. Hi there. It's great to see both of you, Mike and John. John, it's been a while. <laughs> 
it's great to have you back, of course, too. We had you back in ancient, an ancient episode ago, um, but we want to talk about metrics today and I, I, trust, because I think, you know, metrics can be a little bit tough. Trust can be a little bit tough to earn uh, and easy to lose, but um you're doing all sorts of things now. Uh, let's actually, I, I, I mentioned trust first, maybe start us off with this rave metrics and you know wh why, why these, why, what these metrics are and why trust is gonna come up quite a bit in our conversation today. Yeah, absolutely, that's a really good question. Um, you know, probably a couple of years ago when I switched jobs from Intuit to Adobe, it was a, a highlight for me to basically see the industry as it was at the time. And software trust is something that I hold dear. In fact, if you look back at, I think, 2013, when I first did the DevSecOps pipeline, what was really interesting about that was I actually said in there that we were building trust back into software through that pipeline. And if you think about shifting left, where do we start to lose trust? It has to do with all the decisions that we make as software professionals and the things that we do to get software out the door, whether that be, you know, cutting a corner, changing something ineffectively, whatever it might be. And, and so the pipeline itself to create value has to actually also include trust. I think we have lost our way a bit in the software industry um, simply because most technology is relatively hard to set up. Let's be honest. It's, it's not like you're going to go find something magical. Even no code these days is challenging. I've had my hands on lots of no code, low code, just to see how easy it could be, right? <laughs> and, and I think what I've found is there's lots of reasons why you might gain trust with a user, and there's lots of reasons why you might lose trust. And I think they're all effectively measurable, but we focus a lot on metrics as small, discrete things. And not necessarily as a broad whole that covers both creating value mm. and trust at the same time. So that's why the Rave community for me has been such a big deal is to get a unified set of metrics, whether it be incorporating Dora metrics or bringing in securability or whatever it might be to create this notion of trust end to end. I think that's been pretty paramount. No, I think the, um, uh, I'll joke and say so far the um, metrics we've got are like, as, as you say, it's difficult to build software. We have 20 plus page PDFs to harden Kubernetes and other things. We have even a top 10 list for no code. Uh, OWASP came out with that. So we've got 10 things to do there, even with code, but I don't think those are real useful metrics. What are, you know, what, what are the things that you're pointing to that, 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 that you know, show that we're being successful, that we're making a difference, or that even like we should trust some software, something like that? Yeah, absolutely. So I know most people go out to the review sites and they look for their software by comparing features and seeing how other users use them. And what that really turns out to be is adoption. Folks have preferences. You might find out that you have similar preferences. And so you are looking at what is equivalent to a set of adoption metrics. Uh, folks that mm. like the software, folks that don't like the software, uh, but you're not seeing this really interesting view of resilience, adoption, velocity, and error rates, which is what RAVE stands for. And my belief is that we tend to look at most software unbounded. And because we look at it unbounded, we can't really reconcile what we're seeing. So if you were to see great adoption, 
you don't necessarily know how that fits with resilience. Is the application resilient? What well, could be that everybody loves the features and they're willing to put up with downtime, as an example. Uh, and these are really important, critical ways for us to think about how we trust. We, we have to think about pillars for trust. We care about, as software professionals that use software, or even just folks that are adopting software, the resilience of our application. If, for example, say that application had an availability challenge or had a security incident, it's not as resilient. It wasn't resilient by design. And that's going to be a problem for us, even if we're starting to adopt. In fact, what you're going to find is that adoption might be swayed from having a lack of resilience, and then you'll see a churn rate associated with it. Same is true with velocity. If somebody creates software, and let's just say that it takes five years for them to change that software, you might actually be like, I don't want your software because yes, it fits my needs now, but in like two minutes, it's probably going to be outdated. And so if the velocity of features aren't coming out as you expect them or need them, or you're not seeing fixes as you expect them or need them, then velocity can have an impact again on adoption. And, and finally, we have errors. And errors is actually really interesting because this is where we see that if somebody's building a lack of quality into their software, even though it's coming out fast and it's coming out you know, with great features, super wanting this you know, particular piece of software, if it has a ton of errors in it, and you're constantly patching or having to fix that software, if there's um, a significant problem with it that makes it hard to leverage those features, then you're really not going to be able to trust that software package. And so you want both positive metrics and you want to have negative metrics interwoven to really display what we mean by trust. Now, what I know about trust is we're not all the same. You might have specific metrics that you care about more than I do. So the pillars of resilience, adoption, velocity, and errors is most important to creating the bounded framework for trust. And what you actually put into those, let's say that you only have one metric for resilience as an example, then that may be all you need to, to know that your software is what you need it to be. But others might have 25, 30, 50 metrics that they track for resilience because it's that important to their particular situation. Mm -hmm. And in that case, they may have a greater need for resilience. But you don't want to actually sway it based on the metric. You don't want to have arguments about which metric is more important. Well, maybe you want. It, it's funny. This sort of but, it, it resonates with me a little bit, Shannon. Um, maybe not every single piece of it, but we've talked on here in the past, like if you're looking at this is open source GitHub type uh, analogy to it. But if I'm looking for a project on GitHub, do I want to use it or not? I've got the A, V, and E. I don't have the R, I don't think. But like, I'll look, like, how many stars does it have? Is there a bunch of issues? Is there pull requests? Are they getting um, resolved? Is there communication happening? So you can see sort of this happening in a, in that open source community without having to worry about. Um, you can use it as an example with that without thinking about going straight to the commercial. The resilience part, I think you'd have to actually run it, but still... Um, it's interesting to see you codify that. It's something that's been in my head, but not not quite so eloquently put. Yeah, and and you know, it's intuitive. These pillars are super intuitive to us. We've talked about them for many years. I think when you bring up resilience, what I find is that 
it would be really helpful if somebody did know what their availability is, their average availability, if they knew what their securability was. They actually did reconcile it as part of their package. Wouldn't you care deeply that somebody actually had low resilience, but they've got high features, high velocity? You still may use that package of software, but now you know that you may have to mitigate the resilience. Yeah, and I think what also too is that the underlying the, the approach sounds very reminiscent of a developer oriented approach. These are things that a developer is going to be considering looking at. Even as John was describing that, developers aren't going to be worried. Oh, what is the the exploitability score for this? How many CWEs are in here? What's are they using CVSS v three or v four? Nobody cares. Like that doesn't help the developer decide on the resilience. Meaning, the, is this a critical path for a payment gateway? So we do need high resilience. Versus, this is something that has latency doesn't matter. Resilience can be lower for, for whatever reason because that's our use case. So already you've got uh, me as well now being being swayed by just this is friendly and I think you said like um, familiar as well. So. I do want to bring in other words that start with the R and talk about risk. So sure. what is yeah, so what is the this this episode brought to you by the letter R? What is the relation with risk and rave so that we can look at resilience and have something reasonable for uh, you know, our security. So we can have that conversation with AppSec or with, with our CISO. Thank you, Job. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, you know, security professionals tend to get the the hand, if you will, by developers about the issues that they might bring up. And the challenge that I've found through my research, through my work through the years, has been that is because we're not actually talking about trade-off. So when we think about risk, we actually have thresholds associated with metrics. But because we don't actually set them as an industry, we can't really have a conversation about them. When you talk about a metric with a developer, commonly they actually know what their thresholds are. Like if you actually walked up to a developer and said, hey, your app is down it is up 98% of the time and down 2% of the time, they're, they're worried about getting fired. Because really a 2% threshold is too high for that particular application if a customer is actually leveraging it. Now, in other cases, it could be that 2% is okay. And so there's a, a need for us to talk about risk in terms of tolerance. So if we were to think about this, we need to have metrics associated with security. They need to have tolerances. For example, you might not fix every single security vulnerability that you have in your environment, but you might fix all of the publicly available exploitable vulnerabilities. And you may say that there's a zero tolerance for those. You may also say that a default password in your environment is a zero threshold, meaning you're not going to allow default passwords in your environment because they're just that risky. And so when you put it into this framework and you're actually able to then compare, say, availability to securability, and you're able to now create some level of trade-off in a pillared format, you can have a conversation that's more easy for somebody who isn't necessarily a security domain expert. And your expertise can be brought to the table in a way that allows for there to be lanes to have conversations. And I, and I think this has been what's really been missing from an industry perspective for quite some time. 
Now, you, you mentioned like the, the nines of, of resiliency. You know, we've got one nine, we've got five nines, we've got, you know, S3 buckets have something silly like 10 nines or, you know, Godzilla stomping on the coast. This is the only thing that's going to take it down. So, and I, you know, I was making fun of perhaps deservedly CVSS scores, you know, but that's an easy one through 10. How, what do rave metrics, how, how do we talk about using rave metrics? How, how, give us some examples of how they come into that conversation. So we say we have a, a rave of four to the floor and we got some 90s techno or something silly like that. That's <laughs> waiting for that. going, to be, going to be good for a specific audience, but not for CISOs perhaps. Yeah, so for resilience, it tends to be five nines is the the greatest way to explain resilience. So having some of those metrics be able to be adapted to nines is very helpful, which is why um, when I started working on securability, I worked with a bunch of developers on securability. I worked with folks that basically said, I want to know why I should care, why I should actually be concerned. When something drops, I should be able to be reactive towards it. And so I wrote an article recently about securability and the notion of what it takes to have principles associated with it. They're very developer specific. So if you think about it, we want these metrics, these KPIs to be business friendly, developer friendly first. So as AppSec professionals, product security professionals, the first thing we got to do is win over the army of people who are putting together and constructing software. And I think that comes from making it so that they can understand the metric, not necessarily us. We're, you know, those five nines of CVSS scores. I haven't really figured out how to adapt to that yet. Although I will say that CVSS scores are really helpful to be metadata when you're thinking about what is in the denominator of, say, securability. So, Taking in, say, something that's a CVSS score of 10 can be helpful for you to be able to say, yeah, that should be part of the denominator of securability. And oh, by the way, it's really easy to go show and demonstrate that that vulnerability could be exploited and therefore we should fix it right away. That's going to be a trade-off that's going to be super easy with the business because now you've got a demonstrable resilience issue that now can be traded off that if the rest of the metrics are all five nines and that one's dropped the lowest part, it's the the red flare, if you will. And I do think that you're going to see that if you were to comparatively measure things, that you're going to have a lot of that resilience issue be associated with security most often. I think the red flare in the resilience column is commonly security and more often than we'd like to actually admit to. But because we're so focused on not being part of the fold with development Mm -hmm. and business, that we actually are our own special snowflake, we miss out on that opportunity to really have the opportunity to talk about these things. And I will tell you, having done it for years, it's a challenging conversation to sit in a room with a developer and hash it out to say, my bug is more important than your availability <laughs> problem. And I can show you why. And I can show you that your availability problem is related to my securability problem. And so, you know, it's it takes a minute to get those skills, to get that, you know, thought process in place. But very valuable. I guess one of the questions and I think- around that real quick is, and I, I'm, I sort of know the answer on this, but. Um, when you're having that conversation about quote unquote my vulnerability, were you having more issues with the developer or with their manager? In other words, how you prioritize that? Oh, all. Develop- developers want to know 
specifically what they need to do to appease their manager. So if you can't make that prioritization call, that's going to be a, a hard thing to do. Most developers that I find want to do the right thing by security. They realize that that's going to be the thing that wakes them up at night. Um, they do have that interest to have safer software. And I think at the same time, from a developer perspective, what they find is that their product manager is not on board or whatever it might be. And um, I also think that because we don't, and I'm going to use it, shift left, our conversation towards product management and talk about how security has to be part of the budget. For example, if you're going to use a library that's outdated within your scheme of developing something, and you know you're taking on that debt, then you're going to have to open up your security budget and maybe put in one day a week is going to go towards security hygiene. It might even be that you actually have to create your own patch of, of some sort. And these are things that I don't think that we're actually having the conversation about early enough in how we're thinking about security being part of and built into software. And that makes, and partly why I like, like the E of er error rates, that's very understandable for, for, for developers. That helps them, like you said, they, they want to know what's going on. Is this a, a gnarly bug that's going to keep paging me on call at, at midnight, which is really going to annoy me, or is this spurious? It happens, it, it happens once a week, and we would really love to solve it, but we have to make sure we just manage our time accordingly. Resilience also sounds like that in terms of uptime or how quickly you can also recover. Do you have graceful degradation? Obviously, graceful degradation is important for some areas, but you don't want to necessarily have graceful degradation in security. Some type of security does need to be a, a hard stop or fail secure. And where I'm going with this is that idea of, you, you mentioned securability. Now, resiliency, error rates, those make sense to me. I think I'm pretty familiar. We talk about risk. We want to drive down risk, reduce risk. Tell, us, tell me a little bit about securability. Are we trying to get a 100% security, which, um, you know, it's a bit of a leading question because I don't think that's possible. I don't think that's what you're saying. So what, what, what does securability sound like here or look you're like? You're not going to ever have 100% security, but you could have 100% securability. Okay. So it is entirely possible that in your organization, for example, let's just say you have a policy that says zero default passwords. If those never get entered into your environment, then they're never gonna be part of the denominator, meaning they don't exist. And so by default, that will be zero, meaning you have 100% securability, you're not actually bringing that into your environment. And so when you, now of course, to do business, you are going to make trades, you are gonna take risk. And that means that in your denominator are the things that are most likely gonna get adversarial interest, they're the ones that are most likely to get exploited. And if you don't actually know where your exploits are coming from, it means you don't have great control over it. So from a control system perspective, we should actually know, and we do threat models, right? We should actually know what our denominator is or have a close approximation to what that denominator is. And this is where I find that the industry itself is, is um, not bounded enough in how we make these decisions. We tend to talk about threats and we talk about, it could be anything, right? It's, it's just open and loose. And the truth is, is that it, it's not actually. When you, when you think about where vulnerabilities exist, where they stem from, uh, for example, if you allow a user input and you don't validate that input, it's very likely that you're gonna see abuse within that input. 
And um, more likely as you get bigger, maybe more likely as you get more attractive or have features that are interesting to adversaries or they can make money off of you. And so I think it's really critical for us to realize that having the holdover, whether you're right, wrong, precise or not, having some understanding of what is in that denominator is critical to the success of your security program. So when you look at securability, the reason why I said it's probably always going to be your red flare resilience issue is because that is where most companies take some of their risk is within security is we can't be perfect. So therefore, we are going to allow this. We are going to allow that. Those That level of risk is actually still going to be in your denominator, still managing it. And if you have surprise issues coming through as incidents, then you're not actually starting with a defined security budget, which means you don't actually have control. We talk about it as asset management, but the truth is, is you need to take your asset management, figure out what the threats are that you're most concerned about, and that becomes part of the calculation of what's actually going to be probably what comes up in your incident stream. Dan, you surprise. There's an old definition, I think, by Dan Gere, who described security as uh, the amount of unmitigatable surprise, um, which which I've always enjoyed. And Shannon, and you were right. here talking, and you were talking about um, threat modeling and also adversaries here. So threat modeling, I think of what could go wrong, what should we do about it, et cetera, et cetera. You also were, we've talked in the past about adversary management, adversary scorecards. You're taking, I think, I think it sounds related to threat modeling, but it might not be as familiar. Tell us a little bit about why you're taking this this adversary um, angle to things as well, and how that hits resistance or resilience. Yeah, so adversaries in particular have motivation. The hardest thing for them to change is how they monetize. Whether they do monetize is a different problem, but how they monetize, whether it be through fame, glory, whatever it might be, they actually sell your credentials somewhere, whatever their scheme is, that's the hardest thing for them to change. It's also what directs their motivation. It's what directs their their threats. It's the first part of what they go after in terms of initial access, and it's the directive from which they come. As a security industry, as developers, we all look at what are the threats associated with my application? And then we apply sort of a one-size-fits-all from a lens perspective. And the truth is, is that there are adversaries out there with greater skill and there are adversaries out there with lower skills. Just getting into the marketplace, might try something, get lucky. Some adversaries are good. And so, yeah, you're going to always have those risks that you might set out and set forth. But when it comes down to it, if we're not actually applying a test plan that leverages an adversary profile, we're probably missing out. And here's why. Uh, Let's just say that you have a default password, again, going back to that particular use case. And um, let's just say that there's a script kitty out there who knows that particular password, and they can actually run a scanner. They might get lucky some percentage of the time. And if you're not also checking for that default password in your environment, because they're going to get lucky, you're going to end up with an issue and it's going to be a surprise likely. So the, the question that I have for everyone in the industry is why aren't we actually testing all of our script kitty problems? We know them. We actually have some idea of what those are. We write up top 10 lists, but we don't actually create <laughs> scorecards that help us to understand where we are doing well and where we're not doing well. So I, my belief is if you run adversary personas down one side of the page and you put your lowest level of skill at the bottom, let's say script kitties, and you put your highest level of skill 
maybe uh, you know the nation states or the supply chain risk of the of the world, right? Those are your top, those are your bottom. And you were to go after all your applications, you were to look at your environments a certain way and run your tests. You're going to have little green chips for some things because, hey, you don't actually have risk in those scenarios, which means you can move on. And where you do have risk, you're going to be able to apply your ability to mitigate those risks or even defend by monitoring and being aggressive in your response. And that scorecard, because it's missing throughout the industry, is something that I believe we're actually challenged by. We're having a hard time talking about these things with the business. And here's the most interesting thing that adversaries are just some percentage of the total customers that come to your environment, whether they're actually potential customers, they're converted customers, they actually do end up in that traffic, whether one way or another. And so the idea here would be what percentage of the traffic coming to your site is abusive? Is it 10%? Is it 50%? Do you know? Do you have some idea? And most companies actually do if they're looking at their traffic patterns, if they're looking at their SEO, if they're looking at what's actually coming to their website and looking at their conversion rates. There's a lot of interesting information about what is adversarial in the environment and what's been invited and what's not allowed that becomes part of what I think you need to have as an application security professional. Having that data can be really, really helpful in knowing how to tune the controls that you're trying to actually create. Yeah, and, and I think that that tuning is the key part for me because you can't control how many adversaries are out there. You can't control, you can't create fewer or greater teenagers looking for, you know, joyriding the Twitters and Ubers of the world or bug bounty hunters for that matter. Maybe you'll incentivize them more or less based on your rewards. But it's more of this is what that traffic looks like because it is just somebody running Durbuster, somebody running a simple scanner, somebody running this, that why aren't you running that yourself, I think is your point here. And that's not like, to, meaning that it's not over-indexing on who's attacking us, but where their techniques, how are they attacking us, is that's what right. I think the adversarial is you're hinting at here. Yeah, yeah, because if you have bug bounty, let's just, let's just put it out there. You're going to have some that are friendly, you're going to have some that are unfriendly, but they're still going to use the same capability. Why does anybody pay for a subdomain takeover these days? I just don't understand it. If you have enough professionals in your environment to be able to help you to run those tools, why do you pay for it? Why do the big companies pay for those? Because they should be able to classify that particular type of traffic, clear it out, say, you know what, we've tested it. They might get surprises here and there, but if a bulk of what they're doing is actually missing, then they're not, then they're not again, in control of how their application is set up and what they've done to defend it. Okay. And it's, yeah. I've got one. I I want to, I'm not trying to poke the bear, but I'm curious to hear your response to this. So um, we, we started up off at the top of the hour talking about, uh, you know, things should be secure by default and all these type of things. And everyone who goes and installs Kubernetes should have to go through that 25-page document. Why does everyone have to go and get those scanners and, and set them up themselves individually and act, actually get them going? Should Maybe there should be an easier way to actually do the, the offensive side of that as well? Yeah, I think that's true. I think that setting things up from an offensive perspective, why isn't there a test plan that you're able to bring into your environment? When you have the Kubernetes 26-page document, why isn't there a test plan associated with it? You have to harden. The hardening guideline is actually setting up the testable capability. 
And if you ran it at the end, you smoke tested it at the end, you'd have a great regression that shows that everything you did was as secure as possible. Again, we're, we're not going to get to perfect. That isn't actually what I'm saying. We're going to have some level of securability that we cannot accommodate because, oh, by the way, it would cost us billions of dollars to deal with that and it's not worth it. But we're going to know what we're running with. And I think that's the most important thing is, are you running at 99.9 or are you running at 95.7? Which means, hey, sometimes you might have some risks. And now as an end user of your software, I'm going to know I actually do have some risk here, but because it's such amazing software, I'm willing to take that risk. And that's where you build trust is the ability to be transparent. This is where CISA comes in. And this is why as AppSec, mm. you know, CISA coming in with what it's asking for from a transparency perspective, you can't run around and go say, hey, I've got all these incidents and talk about exactly what's happening in a company. But you could talk about your metrics and you could talk about some of the things that are important to know that are going to give me some indication that you've got control over your environment versus, say, all the particulars. I don't need to know every single specific detail of the incidents that you're encountering, but I would like to know that you have some understanding of your environment enough to have a threshold, to know whether or not it's succeeding, and to be transparent about it. So part of this, we also started talking about the, the Rave community, Rave metrics. How can people learn more about this? Uh, and what, what, how can they get involved in understanding this is something new and different, right? Yep, we've got a site, rave.community. Um, we've got a survey out right now to figure out what metrics do people really like, which ones are actually winning. Um, we've been keeping track of those. It would be great if everybody could take the survey because what we intend to do is share that information out. We're writing up a glossary right now of all of the metrics that we've uh, got understanding of. And that glossary is going to be made available over the course of this next six months. If you're interested in metrics at all, please do contact me. Uh, it would be great to work with you and to include you in this community as a founding member of it. That'd be cool. And you also mentioned writing. You've got some new writing coming up as well. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I just started back on Medium. I've got a few articles out there. I've got I've committed to four a month. I'm going to try and do more than four a month, but really sharing more of what I've learned over the years so that we can get to a more measurable future, so we can really push on software trust. And, um, you know, I'm starting to have conversations with different companies about how they might help encourage greater software trust, having conversations about maybe test plans that we can put in place and really raising that bar, if you will, against adversaries. My belief is it would be great if we could cause them to go away because we're actually testing ahead of them and the surprises are getting to be fewer. Well, I do have one semi-surprise for you. And rather than committing to uh, four four articles a month, I need you to commit you to three words. We always ask our guests to describe AppSec in three words. So uh, what, what, what's your response to this one, Shannon? Software safer sooner. Software safer sooner. Absolutely wonderful. And I think we could measure most of that as well, which is always good. Yeah, I think it's time for us to put our measurement where our mouth is. Indeed. And you've given us some some wonderful um, time in, in this, uh, uh, this segment for telling us about all that and the rave. So I just want to say thank you, Shannon. This has been a fun conversation. Thank you. Thanks for poking the bear, John. Also, I say thank you to John and thank everyone who's been listening. We're going to take a quick break now and return with our second interview segment.
Your organization is building and updating business-critical web applications faster than ever. And with so much pressure to move fast, you may find yourself making trade-offs between innovation and security. Now you can build fast without sacrificing security with Invicti, the zero-noise application security platform that helps your dev, sec, and ops teams work together to secure every website, web app, and API. With unparalleled accuracy, coverage, and automation, Invicti scales like no other AppSec solution. Invicti, AppSec with zero noise. Visit securityweekly.com slash Invicti. Struggling to secure all your applications with modern identity services? You're not alone. But with identity orchestration, you can say goodbye to refactoring and complexity. Strata Identity helps you modernize app identity at scale while mitigating security risks and simplifying policy management. Maintain a consistent security posture and simplify policy management with identity orchestration. If you're ready to simplify your identity environment and improve your app security, share your IAM challenge with the Strata team to get a brand new set of earbuds. Just visit securityweekly.com slash strata to learn more. That's securityweekly.com slash strata. Imperva is the comprehensive digital security leader on a mission to help organizations protect their data and all paths to it. Only Imperva protects all digital experiences, from business logic to APIs, microservices, the data layer, and from vulnerable legacy environments to cloud-first organizations. With an integrated approach combining network, application, and data security, Imperva protects companies ranging from cloud-native startups to global multinationals with hybrid infrastructure. Start a free trial today and quickly protect your web app applications at securityweekly.com slash imperva. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. We just talked with Shannon Leitz about resilience and brave metrics, which is sort of like Alice DJ asking security, are you better off alone? This is our second interview segment this week. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm here with John Kinsella. Uh, John, hang around for a moment because you have to wait through an announcement because we have to asking people to join us at an upcoming official cybersecurity summit in a city near you. This series of one-day invitation-only executive-level conferences are designed to educate senior cyber professionals on the latest threat landscape. We're pleased to offer our listeners $100 off admission when you register with code SECWEEK23. Visit securityweekly.com slash cybersecurity summit to learn more and register today. Melinda Marks is a senior analyst at the Enterprise Strategy Group, where she covers application and cloud security. Her coverage area also includes cloud-native application protection platforms, cloud workload protection, cloud security posture management, DevSecOps, web, web application security testing, all the testing, that alphabet soup, and API security. She has over 20 years of experience in tech marketing and strategy. Her experience also includes running competitive market intelligence and product marketing teams at Tenable and running global communications for four years at Qualys. Hello, Melinda. Thank hey. you for joining us. Hey there. Great to see you guys. Wonderful to have you here. And uh, ran into you at RSA this year, and we were talking about uh, shifting left, API security, all sorts of uh, fun things that are a, a bit platitudes, but actually have some meat to them. And you, in fact, have been doing a lot of um, research recently on shifting left as well. So tell us a little bit about the, the, the research you've been doing. Yeah, so the fun part about being an analyst is we get to do these research projects. And to me, it's, you know, I worked at Qualys. 
Chris worked at Tenable, worked at startups and container security and cloud native security. And there's always research and stats that I wanted to have on what are key trends, what are challenges that organizations face. So my first research project out of the gate was a project on developer-focused security. And for cloud native, everyone's been talking about shifting left because you have smaller security teams having to support development as it scales and the cycles that are a lot faster for cloud native development. So how can security support that? We've been talking about shift left for years now. So it was meant to be that the title of the paper is Walking the Line, Shift Left and Get Ops Security. And it was supposed to be a little bit provocative. Like we've been talking about shifting left for so long. How successful have you been? How far left have you been able to shift? And so we asked a lot of questions on challenges, pain points, and got a lot of interesting results just to see how successful people were, how security can work with developers and it's just lots of good data. So um, don't want to don't want to have complete spoilers for the report, but do give us a taste of um, you know as, as you said, it's been years perhaps having this discussion. Mm-hmm. How have people been successful, or perhaps sometimes the more fun anecdotes are you know what, what were the absolute failures or just thrown over to the fence and here, okay, John, we shifted over to you, run with it. Yeah, and I've, I've blogged a little bit, bit about this kind of ranting about how I have some angst and issues around the shift left term because um, I think with left, people have a misconception that it's left in the software development life cycle. And, and to me, that's kind of based on older concepts of a more linear product life cycle where you're developing, um, testing, staging, releasing, and then on the right is the runtime. And then the part that was driving me crazy is people saying, don't shift left, shift right. And then the word shift implies that you're shifting things or there's a lot of worry about, oh, will I still have a security job if developers are going to be doing security? So, you know, trying to get past that stuff and figure out how can security teams work with development in a way where, you know, it's imperative that you shift security left to developers. And to me, when I talk about shift left, it's having more responsibilities for developers. So they're doing things like testing. And yes, it is early in the software development lifecycle that is the best way because once you deploy it, um, it's out there. Um, So that is better to do as much as you can in the preventative side, but it's also about making things easier for developers helping them facilitate their work. They care about security. They just don't necessarily want to become security experts. So some of the findings of the report, we asked about what what are the challenges and challenges were things like security has no visibility of processes and tools that are taking place with development. Um, We did find that with the survey, there was a high percentage of organizations who said they'd shifted left, but the way that they're shifting left in most cases was through cloud security platform tools. So tools from Amazon, AWS, other testing tools, just when they're developing their apps that they might use. They're also using a lot of open source tools or they're building custom, custom tools. And for security, there's, there's smaller, there's a smaller number of vendor tools. And I think the, the security vendor tools, I think caused some of the friction and confusion early on. So several years ago, it was this understanding that yes, we need, do need to shift security left to developers, 
But for some security vendors, they kind of thought, well, that just means giving developers security tools. And when you try to get a security person to, or a developer to go use a security tool, um, that's not really going to work. They just want to work in their own tools and workflows. So things like that created the friction of, I'm a developer. I'm trying to do my job of developing. I don't want to take on security responsibilities, or maybe I do, but I can go find this open source tool and just do it. And I don't want to have to interact with the security team. Or every time I'm interacting with the security team, it's not a good experience because they're going to slow me down or they're going to force me to do something that's going to slow slow things down. And I just need to build my product <clears throat> and deliver it on my timeline. So now there's been a good progression of better tools that work in their workflows, more understanding of some of the open source and or orchestrating things that maybe happen in the background so that developers can just incorporate it. And then they know they have more confidence about, oh, I'm going to, I don't want to have to do remediation work later. Um, I don't want to spend a lot of time. Like once something's caught in runtime, it's going to be a lot harder for me to fix. Um, with that kind of understanding and collaboration, that's where good things are happening. And you know, part of what you do is, you know, it's in the title, you know, strategy. And you, I think that translates to helping security teams, helping apps that get a right mindset for working with cloud, cloud-native apps. And you mentioned tools quite a bit there. And, and we've talked in the past ourselves about developer-friendly tools. These are in the IDE. But tools seem like the, the wrong way to be maturing or adopting the idea of shifting left. Because, okay, we've got more tools, we're running more tools, whether they're developer-friendly or not. That feels like it's just, we've got tools, we've got possibly got noise, now we have even more vulns that we found and we have to fix all the vulns, mm -hmm. which kind of is a setup for these are not necessarily the right mindsets, right? So what are the mindsets you talk to CISOs or AppSec teams about to approach this in ways that are successful? Whether setting aside, we can call it shifting or not, but that it's not just a tool-oriented mindset. Yeah, really great question, because that's a lot of what I'm talking about now, especially I feel like last year was like the year of too many tools and alert fatigue, and everyone was trying to consolidate and do things in a better way because there's too many false positives. And yeah, I put in some tools, but now the developers are ignoring the alerts because there's just too many. And then on the security team side, it's I have too many things popping up. I don't know how to prioritize. So there has been that move to consolidating or thinking in a better way of how to solve these problems. And I do think there is a shift in the mindset that has to happen where, and I, I talk about this a lot, where um, in traditional security, you know, you, th you do think of that linear product development kind of cycle. And so you need to think of it's more dynamic now. And that's that was part of that um, kind of left right <laughs> complaining that I was doing earlier is you just have to realize like you have to become enablers of development, your role's going to change a little bit. I think the traditional security mindset um, is that your your AppSec team is going to be doing all the security things, doing the testing. And there's also this concept of, oh, I need coverage. Like every time my cat is is opening the door. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, um, like, oh, I have to do all the security things. I need more coverage. I can't miss alerts. And it's, it's very much driven by what incidents the organizations are facing. So when you think of security teams or CISOs, 
sometimes they're not aware of very important cloud native development issues. So things like infrastructure as code templates and possible misconfigurations, um, sprawling numbers of APIs, um, the open source software. Um, once attacks happen or they face incidents, all of a sudden it's, I got to scramble to go fix this. So it's, it's, can you work with your security team? Does your security team understand the developers, the developer workflows, um, how they want to work? They don't want to just get something sent to them about all the things they need to fix. They need something that gives them more understanding so they can do it with their timelines. Maybe it's in the normal um, tools that they're using to get issues about bugs and how to fix them. Um, just kind of change that traditional mindset of, I need to do all the security things, I need coverage, I need more tools, I need, instead I need to go talk to developers, see what they're doing, see how I can make things easier for them, see how I can automate security pro processes, make sure I can set policies for them. And at that point, it's, it is shifting security left to developers where they have some security responsibilities, but then security changing to have more of a role where they have visibility and control. So they know the processes have taken place. They have visibility of different assets, which is more complex in cloud environments and types of cloud resources that are spun up and spun down. But they can um, get a better sense of risk and context and work more efficiently. And a lot of what you're describing is, in fact, um, the you know, development work, even the, the infrastructure is code. There, you know, there's code right there. So that yeah. does feel like responsibilities for, for the development team. And I don't necessarily disagree with the idea that the AppSec, you know, my AppSec job is going to go away. I think a lot of AppSec tasks should, in fact, go away. They're mm -hmm dated like you were, you were almost describing like the waterfall method right. of uh, of life cycle development they're just smaller waterfalls yes. that's that's all uh -huh. um so what you know in talking to CISOs or in the way you've seen organizations be successful in embracing cloud native apps with security how do those teams work do you still see an appsec team or is it more of just that blended i'll call it DevSec ops or just a development plus AppSec developers on that team. Yeah, and I I love all the trainings and more resources that are out there because it's it's always getting better. And there is more like when I do research, I'll ask about what are the challenges with frequent release cycles, what are the security challenges, and the numbers of like developers don't want to work with us keep going down, <laughs> which is nice. I mean, I do I do go to like CNCF events. Um, or it is more developer and DevOps um, focused and shift left focused. And I'm always asking, like, do you trust your security team? Do you want to work with your security team? And, and I also talk to like IT and ops leaders at some of these conferences, and they'll talk about doing security things. And I'll say, well, how do you work with the security team? And I'll either get the eye roll or I'll get the, oh, we've been hand in hand from the beginning because we want to strategically align. So I think the key is... Um, strategic alignment. So IT and ops and AppSec, their goals for application uptime, reputa brand reputation, all of those things overlap. So if an application comes down, um, you know, it's an operations issue, but it could be a security issue. So these teams, they have to come together better. Um, when I talk to CISOs who are feeling like they're more successful with cloud native, if it's an enterprise company and they have a CISO, a lot of times it's, I, I've heard a lot of, I had a traditional AppSec team 
but they just didn't work well with the developers. They didn't have a developer or DevOps mindset. So I had to go find some DevOps folks who were interested in security, or I, I took them and I trained them, and they're the ones who are now in charge of the cloud native security stuff. But it just, it totally depends on the organization, the size. Um, there's different titles as things evolve too. Um, there's cloud, there's security engineering teams now. I think SecOps is evolving a lot, which is something mm-hmm. uh, I'm working on a project right now on cloud detection and response with my colleague, John Oltzik. So he covers security posture um, in general, not cloud security posture. Um, I cover the cloud part um, and he co- covers hygiene and he also covers SecOps and SIMS and um, other tools in, in that area. So we're doing this study on cloud detection and response to kind of see, and I told him, you know, certain organizations that are cloud native, they may not have a formal security team or a SecOps team or a SOC. Um, they might just have like an SRE. It just totally depends on the organization. And to me, it's if a security team can get aligned with the business goals, so they're enablers instead of blockers, then that's really the key to being successful is figuring out how to build build a program that's going to scale, that's going to use their staff and resources in the best way. And this is where the products and tools really come in is the, the reality of the cybersecurity skills shortage, our research just on tech and tech spending intentions shows that the biggest skills gaps are in cybersecurity. And then when you look at the skills gaps in cybersecurity, cloud security is always at the top and AppSec is usually kind of close to the top. I think things like vulnerability management and network security, kind of the older things are usually closer to the bottom for the skills gap. So that's when you need those right tools, um, processes, policies in place where you're making things easier for your staff so that they can scale. So does that seem, because it it feels like we've been hearing that number for, mm, I'll say five years now, uh, that there's that specifically talking around the the, the skills gap around um, AppSec and CloudSec. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense of why? Is that, are we not educating enough people? Are they not staying in it? Is it that there's so much more that they have to actually come up to speed on? Is there some sort of pattern you've seen around that possibly? or? Yeah, I think it's just uh, uh, the challenges between faster development life cycles and scaling, uh, understanding of DevOps. Maybe it's they want to feel like they understand sometimes there's coding or other kind of DevOps types thing, type of things. But then the other part, part of aspect of it is with cloud security, just the complexity of Gaining, yeah, gaining visibility of the environments because it's it's a dynamic environment. And it's also, it's a change in the tech stack, right? Like when you think of traditional um, InfoSec, it is the computing stack um, as well as the applications that you're building. But in cl- with cloud security, um, a lot of the stuff that's done with the platforms is through the CSP. So the job of security it moves up the stack to mostly just the application. So we talk about workloads and applications, but like to me, all these different categories that are out there now, it's really, it's really like app, it's really protecting the applications because that's what um, moving to the cloud does is you just focus on building your applications. You, you can provision your infrastructure and you can build your applications. So then the security part becomes that part. And then also working with the, 
cloud service providers to understand what they provide tied in with what you're putting in the cloud and figuring out how to secure that. So it's it's just, I think it, it again, it's a different mindset for traditional AppSec where they're thinking of the waterfall processes, they're thinking of, you know, different kinds of testing and what happens where in the life cycle Whereas with cloud native, it's more about making sure visibility is the constant, policy and control is the constant, but it's also, you know, the challenges of gaining enough visibility to see everything, track everything, and then respond quickly. So, you know, everything is about faster remediation and then closing feedback loops for who needs to make that remediation and helping them do it in the most efficient way. And a, a lot of the stuff that I find in the research through several studies is we'll ask like, how are you doing different aspects that you need to do for security? And the amount of manual labor that's involved um, from managing multiple tools, there's a lot of wasted time man deploying, managing, um, and like looking at the different tools and trying to compare what their find what the findings are. That's a lot of time wasted. There's a lot of issues around, again, the things that scale quickly with cloud native. So things like um, access and cloud infrastructure ent entitlement. So I did a cloud security posture management study and looked at the cloud infrastructure entitlement management aspects. And there's so much that's done manually when you know developers are setting entitlements to build their applications. And it's all about... Um, you know, some are human, it's human access or it's resource to resource access and they provision it quickly. They often over provision it and then they forget to pull those back before they deploy it. And then that's a big surface area that's proliferated that they need to control. Um, things like that, things like APIs. Um, yeah, the access issues are big, but all these things that scale rapidly, like security just needs ways to figure out how to manage it and support it. So what part of the yeah, part of part of that too is there's also a lot of confusion amongst you, you mentioned like tools and I think this ties in maybe a little bit to John's question about um you know the the skills shortage. So mm -hmm. so VM very vulnerable. Everybody understands the the old old school VM tools, etc. Mm -hmm. And you know it, in your areas of coverage there's SAS, DAST, IAST, SCA, etc. Mm -hmm. There's also a bunch of acronyms within the cloud now too. Yeah. So is part of this just because we've got a lot of acronyms that people aren't really figuring out? What does who who does CSPM or ABCDEFG or yeah. you know how, how does it, how does this fall into this, this category of confusion versus something a CISO needs to pay attention to? Yeah, to me, it's a, a challenge because a lot of times it's because and I hate to say this, but like sometimes there's vendors that just don't know how to describe what they do or when you're looking at security <laughs> vendors and you're looking at all their websites you like read through and there's all these buzzwords used and some of it's I mean I was in marketing so it's some of this is my fault of you know there's buzzwords <laughs> and you're trying to get SEO and you're trying to make sure a customer looking for something can find you if you have that kind of solution but it doesn't keep up with how fast innovation happens with cloud native. And I'll, I can give you the example of I worked at a container security company, Stackrocks, and 
um, it was container security. We did runtime container security, and we wanted to build a category. <laughs> we wanted to say we're the only ones who do something. And But if you think about it, it was really AppSec, but we didn't want to compete with the Veracodes and the AppSec vendors wow. because we didn't do, we, didn't, we weren't an AppSec company. Um, and then so you try to create this category, but when you think of alignment with what are you selling or what are you trying to help a customer do to me, like you have to prioritize um, what you do as understanding the customer's problem and figuring out how you're solving the problem and giving them value. And that's more of the key than like building a category or falling into an acronym because with the acronyms, like by the time that the category and the acronym is created, there's already an innovative, a, a smarter, more innovative way to solve that or a more efficient way to solve that. And so it's not keeping up with what the real problems are and the most efficient ways to solve them. So if I talk to a CISO now talking about what are they going to need to do to build their cloud security program, it's more about how can I scale my team to do the things that it needs to do? How am I going to gain visibility? How am I going to be able to make sure I meet compliance regulations and I'm not find or I don't have incidents and it so it's more about um, risk risk management um, things like faster response to threats like the CDR research we're doing and those are their real problems so, so sometimes we'll do the research kind of aligned with some of these category names mm -hmm. but it's more because there's like buzzwords and all these vendors are trying to use it but they don't do what they need to do to solve the real problems so we try to dig into it to make some you know, smart, we can say things sure. about what organizations need that will work or what doesn't work. Now, at, at the risk of uh, of creating more categories, when you speak to CISOs and, and you're talking about like, how should their, you know, how should they structure their org? How should they work together with IT and make this successful? There is, I've heard a couple whispers of the cloud center of excellence and the concept of a center of excellence isn't necessarily new at all. I'm curious, is that something that is a, is a category that's going to emerge and replace DevOps, DevSecOps, or is this just another label for cats and dogs living together? <laughs> I, yeah, I love that. I think cats and dogs living together. Or sometimes, sometimes I do think like there's these other titles created to get away from marketing people who decide they need to focus on certain <laughs> titles to like to go after. So, I mean, this is the stuff that we track in every research project we do. We'll ask about the different titles and what their responsibilities are. So we'll ask who has the budget, who has the decision-making oh, capability, who does the tech evals, who sets the technical requirements, who are the users. And then we get these charts back on on, on it, we can also slice and dice that data into personas, into the company uh, verticals or company sizes, and then we can usually find some interesting patterns. So yeah, Cloud Center of Excellence, we find an increasing a num number of that. I also see things like security engineers increasing. Um, but, and then, yeah, we track, we track that a lot just to see and to, again, give advice to our clients so they can focus how they're communicating um, in the best way for what's going to help those people with what their jobs are and their goals. 
We're all smiling now because one of your own personal clients is about to uh, open the door, the little kitty. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll keep a track on that for the, the next several minutes as well. But Melinda, there's also, you know, as you're talking to uh, the, the, the CISOs, mm-hmm. you know, in that, in that either the personas that, you know, budget and controls as well as, you know, who's responsible, who has to write the we take your security seriously letter. Mm-hmm. Have you seen those be, is there something that surprised you? in this particular research, meaning some org that's actually particularly mature that has a structure that is is unfamiliar to you or, you know, that, that you didn't expect? Or is there something, I'm just kind of curious, Is what stood out or mm-hmm. if there isn't anything that stood out, the, the opposite end of that is there, you know, security theater still out there. What are people doing that yeah. they should have really just stopped ages ago? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. There is a lot of security theater. There's also, I mean, this is where we try to help sort things out with just education and information. Um, the, the thing that surprises me that I'm hoping to see less of is just like the clueless, I hate to say it, like just the clueless C, um, CISO who um, is just doesn't know how to work with the CSPs and just, again, has that old security mindset of, um, I'm going to set gates. Um, the CSPs oh. need to, like, run things by Good me. Luck. Yeah, exactly. Um, like, that kind of stuff just frustrates me because it's like, you're not going to have a job in six months because you are you're you just don't get it. Um, and then the, the I have seen more of the, I do see a lot of that. They're successful if they can find the right people who have that developer um, empathy and, and the trend I'm seeing, again, is, like, more training. Like, you guys show programs, AppSec programs, like Tanya Janka is doing really great things, um, where there's more of that knowledge-sharing um, kind of, like, empathy between groups, more, more of a collaborative feel than the, like, bickering that's ha- that was happening. And then the, the frustrating thing for me, too, and I've seen this, I guess, before even before I was an analyst, is just the frustration of, like, there's certain because of the skills gap, there are certain companies that are going to have advantages because they can hire a super genius team to go build some custom thing for their developers, um, and they'll do it with their with ops and um, you know their their ops and IT team and security will build something really cool that their team can use. And this is where I get excited about my job now, working with the security vendors and some really cool startups where they're doing a lot of that custom building and then creating it as a solution that other companies can use to get those advantages of scale where that you wouldn't be able to get because of the cybersecurity skills gaps and you know how custom things have to be for each organization for cloud native because it's so it's so new there's not like canned ways to do things or there there are increasingly better packaged ways of doing things, but, you know, it's, it's evolving. So to drill into that, you're seeing um, the more they'll take, like that vendor will take, our startup will take like a design partner, actually figure out how to sort of get the cookie pieces to go together or puzzle pieces. And then mm-hmm. they'll, I don't want to say they'll, they'll package it up and sell, but they'll, they'll share it with others. Right. Yeah. Yes. They'll share it with others. And then, you know, I guess the other trend that's interesting um, is I, I think it's very important for organizations to make their decisions based on evaluating what they have. So um, go talk to developers, go talk to other teams, work on alignment, work on training and awareness. Um, you know, sometimes I see 
that organizations aren't going to pick like the best solution, but they're already a big customer of a certain vendor. And that vendor added some functionality that helps in an area that will be really helpful. So it's just like in any job, like, do you want to get new tool? Like you might have certain tools in place. You really have to evaluate like what works well. Um, should I pull things out? Do I really want to rip everything out? There's just a lot of, um, customization issues depending on every situation and again to me like this is why I like being an analyst this is all like to me I try to make sure people are informed they can make the right decisions because even though there might be some really great startup with an amazing um, innovative way to solve something it might not be practical for you to go rip a bunch of stuff out and go use it and to me the key is you know, I work with a lot of the, the vendors in my space on trying to help them, um, you know, smartly and articulately say what they do, be honest about what they don't do. Um, you know, we've been in the industry for long enough to know that the, the quick wins don't help you long term. Um, and so, you know, for me, a lot of it is like try, trying to help people cut through the BS and just like sol- solve problems and fi- figure out. What, what can they do that's going to be good for their program and their needs? And then for vendors, how do you communicate it? So you're really partnering with the customer and not just like trying to build a company that's going to make a quick buck and get acquired or whatever. It's like just fo- focus on solving the needs of your customers, communicating that, and then that's how you're going to do well. So I want to flip that one around. Um, now that we know that there are startups and vendors out there which are willing to um, – assist customers in certain cases if the you know probably if there's a, a large enough of a invoice how does have you seen any signs for how um you know one of these companies we're talking about that's understaffed or has the wrong or someone's in the wrong position or they need training whatever else how do they figure out who that vendor is or when they're comparing a vendor a to vendor b is there something they look for do they bluntly ask hey can you help me with this um any patterns around that yeah, um, for me, and this is why we try to help organizations and start, especially startups, is I know this having been at so many startups in a short period of time is you're often in your bubble in understanding just what you do and why you think what you do is the best. So we work with the startups to give them that market view um, so they can uh, be informative in the right way and also use more objective info because I think people are conditioned to not just believe what a startup, what somebody claims they can do. Like they want to try it, they want to use it, or they're going to listen to peers. So for for those companies, those those startups, to me, it's key to um, have ways that organizations can understand the value, um, get demos, um, be clear on the website. Again, cut the buzz buzzwords and BS, and then for organizations, I, I think like they, I think in the security industry, like I was in, I worked at VMware for a long time and I worked at middleware companies and those were, it was like a technical crowd that is very skeptical, but security people are even more skeptical. And so if they get a lot of marketing buzz or they can't quickly understand what you do or your value prop, then it's easy to get turned off. So, and, and, organizations are trying to sort through that. And there's some, like in my area, 
these categories, there's so many vendors in each of these different, like CSPM, CWP vendors, the C, now everybody's claiming they're a CNAP. And then the customers just like, they'll, they just have to like go by what's on the website, what resources they can find, what reviews, what, what, um, you know, analyst reports or whatever they might look at. But, you know, our advice with those organizations is just be educational, stick to information. And then for people trying to sort this stuff out is, you know, try it, talk to peers, um, all that kind of stuff is, um, you know, the way to get to the truth, because otherwise it's just a lot of noise and um, stuff to sift through. To, to me, the benefit of cloud native is there's more you can just try it and see see how it works or see if you get something. Um, it's it's shorter sales cycles. You don't have to do the POCs as much. That's the benefit. And I guess the excitement of like SaaS products and things like that. Yeah. There's you got some background commentary as well. Speaking of of, of noise from 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 Kitty, yeah. uh, kind of a follow up question there too. Speaking, you mentioned there at the end about the it seems like the, the shorter demo cycles, mm-hmm. proof of concept, proof of value, or whatever the the, the modern great startup phrase is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you said, don't chase the new hotness for for for, for CISOs. Mm-hmm. Do you also see them like in terms of changing tools as being cloud native or that that modern cloud app development, does it make it easier to change tools? Does it make it easier to resist a lock-in and say, oh, actually, this add-on is useful to us rather than, uh, we're already stuck with this vendor. They've got something that's mostly works. We'll just we'll just use that. Yeah, and that's a trade-off and something to evaluate because I also see this is the reason why sometimes there you might not want to go with some startup, even if they seem to have a best of breed, if you're heavily invested in a certain security vendor. Like I see, we see, we watch a lot of trends of like how, how many, um, how much flexibility can you get? I, I think there's a good trend moving forward to more subscription models and pay as you go. So you don't get, as much lock-in issues. Um, uh. Like there's a, I think there's a lot of good innovate. This is like, I guess why I get excited about this space compared to traditional stuff is that if you have this, you know, Qualys, we talked about the SaaS model and the cloud model all the time, but those, those subscription models where it's more of a service instead of a product, I think is helpful in helping people be more flexible about what they use versus being locked in. So, um, We've noticed like now people are worried about financial stuff. Like they're instead of doing three year subscriptions, they are moving to one year subscriptions. And then maybe it could be that they'll use a startup for a year, but once they're bigger company that they're more invested in, their bigger vendor that they're more invested in gets that, that functionality, maybe they'll switch to it. So that gives some flexibility. But to me, I think if you're if you're a startup, the more flexible you can be, the more you can be upfront about pricing and packaging. If you can handle the scale of a lot of people buying your product through your website, those are all things to weigh. <laughs> like those are all the things you weigh um, at startups. Like again, having been there, um, worked on that kind of stuff mm-hmm. is you know find 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 the right customers, design partners, and then gradually scale. But there is that move to if you have a really good product and you can sell it through your website, you don't um, you don't have to go through salespeople and lengthy sales cycles. It's more like you see the demo or you get to try it and all of a sudden you can do something or or you turn something 
you, it's some kind of trial where you turn it on and you don't want to turn it off because you saw something you couldn't see before or you can do something way easier. Yeah. And yeah. some of those, and they, they may seem like other categories because they're capabilities, they're key capabilities. Um, they, it's like that's worth somebody buying. Well, we won't keep you too much longer, Melinda, because speaking of lock-in, it uh, looks like Kitty is ready to uh, make a break for it somehow. <laughs> but uh, you've been talking, you know, this focus here is cloud-native, um, DevOps, developer-focused security. You're, a lot of what you do is cloud app or app modernization yes. and security. So uh, what are some things that we could also be looking forward to that from your writing, from your research for the rest of the year? Oh, yeah. So super excited. I We just kicked off a series um, with me. And so I'm in the cybersecurity segment, but I have an, another analyst I work closely with who covers DevOps and app modernization, infrastructure modernization. His name is Paul Nashawati. And um, we both go to the CNCF conferences and or he goes to the DevOps conferences and sees security is a big theme. We talk a lot. I look at his research and the trends that he gets for his research and then I look at it and go, oh, what are the security implications of things like WASM adoption? Gotcha. Like, what does that mean for security? So we just kicked off a series where we're talking about, you know, faster development cycles. Well, what's the impact on security? Um, we have a couple shows coming up on generative AI implications for development and for security. Um, and then another episode on APIs and um, building developer communities and developer awareness of security. So those kinds of areas, again, um, if if IT, ops, and security can communicate, and if I can communicate a lot with this DevOps um, analyst, this is the collaboration and conversations that need to happen. Awesome. And so, Melinda, usually I end on a, a single question, but this time I've got two questions. First one is, um, for, for those of you watching the video, there's a wonderful cat trying to open a door in the background. What, what's, what's Kitty's name? Oh, this is Iris. And then Iris. I've got Manticore, her brother, who's like lazy in bed. So she, <laughs> she's a lot more. Excellent name. So lazy in bed just happens to be three words. And so that's a good setup, Melinda. I usually ask our guests to describe AppSec in three words. So um, Manticore is already taking lazy in bed. So what's going to be your response for this? Yeah, so I think I'll say two words for this year that are extremely important are efficiency and efficacy. And then I guess, oh God, the third word would just be, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess the hyphenated cloud native. So, you know. Yep, hyphens work. Cloud. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much, Melinda. We, we got um, some incidental entertainment from Kitty as well, but we also got some great information from you about uh, app modernization, cloud, and being strategic about what how, how CISOs especially can, can approach this. Thank you. Thanks. Good to see you guys. It's good to see you too. I want to say thank you to John and thank you to everybody uh, for joining us. Please do subscribe, hit that like button, check out the show notes. And speaking of getting into a mindset, check out Faded by Hotel Pools. We'll see you next time on Application Security Weekly. Bye, Iris. <laughs>